0: Would you take God's word, turn to Exodus chapter 20? We are engaged in a series in the Ten Commandments, and we're at number 10. So we'll be looking at verse 17. Before we look at God's word this morning, why don't we just pause for a moment and ask God to really speak to our minds and hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we get so distracted by our own agendas, by our own events, things happening around us, things happening in our world and our nation. It's hard, and we admit this, it's hard for us to come and just quiet ourselves before you. So we ask that your spirit would do that this morning. We ask that your word, which we know was inspired by your spirit, speak to us in a way that we can understand. And I pray for the grace to accept what you say to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come here and worship to an audience of one. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. To teach each other, to admonish each other, to walk with each other in truth and grace. So no matter what's happened this week, Lord, help us just to kind of set that aside. And help us to engage with you in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. I was sitting in a men's Bible study one day, and one man was broken in tears, and he was just sobbing. And here's what he was saying. He says, I don't understand why God would do this to me. I prayed about it. He gave me a green light. And he even used this verse. Psalms 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Well, the green light that he felt he had from the Lord was to go out and purchase a brand new 4x4 pickup truck that he did not have the money for. And it was repossessed after three months because he couldn't make the payments. And so he was trying to figure out why God would do this to him. Well, he failed to understand that verse. The first part says, Delight yourself in the Lord. So if we have our desires in the Lord and what he wants for us, then he will give us the desires of our heart because our heart is set on his things, not our things. In fact, the context of that is really not about stuff. I mean, here's the context. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord, do good. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, he will act. It's someone who was hiding in fear of what enemies will do and his heart was consumed with fear. But how many times do we take God's word and and how many times does the church try to make Jesus into what we want? See, the goal of the church is to see what God desires. And one of the major problems of that is this 10th commandment. It's about coveting. Exodus 20, verse 17. And God uses just more than two words this time, but he kind of expands upon it, and here's what he says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That kind of ties right back into the adultery thing that we talked about. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, here's what the legalist does. Legalist looks at that, and he says... I don't even like my neighbor's house. Of course, he picks the one he doesn't like. And the wife, he says, you know, if she was the last woman on earth, you know, I would not want to be married to her. Servants, I don't have servants. An ox, he don't have an ox. I don't have an ox. Donkey, I don't have those things. Then you get to the little word, anything. And the legalist starts saying, well, what does God mean about using the word anything. And so they say, Pastor, tell us what the Hebrew word anything means. Well, it means anything. <laughs> it means, okay, get rid of the initial list. Anything you want to put on that, you can covet literally anything. You can covet someone's appearance. In America, the world of plastic surgery, it's a multi-million dollar industry. Last year, they spent $13 billion fixing things they didn't like when they looked in the mirror. Article of Time Magazine, it's interesting what they said because predominantly women get plastic surgery. Of course, they blame men for that. But men's plastic surgery is growing. It was 25% of the market last year. But here's what the article, let me give you this quote. It says, you're gonna get A cosmetic procedure for the same reason you wear makeup because every other woman is. I thought, isn't that a statement about how we covet? You can covet spouses, you can covet kids. How many times did parents say, Why can't you guys be like so and so's kids? You can covet education, you can covet a job, you can covet cars, you can covet, you can covet anything. But what this commandment is talking about is being a good neighbor. And how you are to be a good neighbor, you know, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, is you don't sit there and you get in this competitive desire saying, I wish I had what they had. I searched for a lot of different definitions about coveting. Again, I'm going to say Mark Driscoll won this competition this week. Here's his definition. It's three words. Ungodly discontented desire. Ungodly, discontented desire. When there's a conflict between what God desires for you and what you desire for you, that's where coveting comes into play. It makes some people go out and purchase the trucks because, you know, they say God gave them a green light. No, they gave themselves a green light, saying, well, God will pay for it because he owns a cattle in a thousand hills. But, you know, the money wasn't there in your bank account. You weren't content with that. And so much wasted suffering in our culture due to coveting. It creates a lot of soul misery. There's a lot of negative emotional energy, misplaced desires. And I want to expose this problem by asking a question. And the question is going to be a little controversial, but that never stopped me before. (laughs) But let me ask the question. I'm going to let you think about it. And then let me give some context to this. Does God cause some people to be more rich in dollars than others? I want you to think about that. Does God allow or cause some people to be wealthier financially than other people? Now, let me give you context because America's poor, if you travel to third world countries, they call them the poor rich. So when you look at context, we all have more money than somebody else, especially when you go outside the borders of America. I know there's a whole controversy going on in our country right now politically about redistribution of wealth. But you know, there's an old business maxim that says this, we measure what we value. And when you start looking at this whole redistribution of wealth. What bothers me is the core value of that is stuff. It says a person's value is based upon what they have. Now the core value of the kingdom of God is what? Is to give him the glory. That's our core value. We say, we live, we do everything for his glory. Not evaluate people basis on stuff. But we have a major, major issue. I was in a class in Toronto one time and we had eight different countries represented. And we had to do a a passage of scripture that had to do with heaven, the streets being paved with gold and precious jewels and everything else. And I'll never forget what the one person from the country of India said. He looked at me because I was the only American in there even though I was living in Canada. And he goes, you Americans, he says, you look at that passage and you say, wow, you know, Gold, precious stones. Wow, all this wealth is just going to be gorgeous. We're all going to be rich. He was in our country. We say, huh, all this stuff we value, it's going to be like asphalt, dirt. We're going to walk on it. We won't even notice it. I thought, what a perspective shifts and condemnation of our own hearts on how we interpret Scripture at times. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Here's what Paul writes to Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be halty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on, on God. Again, everything's focused on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And the storing up of treasure for themselves has to do with the good works. Not the money, okay? That's not the context. So that they may take hold of what is truly life. See, life is not about stuff. It's not about how much you have or how much you don't have. It's not how big your house is or what kind of car you drive. Yes, all those factors, we look around. But God says, listen, don't covet. Don't covet. Now, can we confess this morning, at least... That coveting is all pervasive, overwhelming. It is a major sin problem in America. Can we admit that? Okay, shake your head up and down. I want to see if you're awake. Okay, good. Think about our entire economy. It's based on coveting, isn't it? They create discontent. Why? So you will buy more to get content. They create discontent with what you have so you will buy something that you don't need and you'll be content at least for a week. Now, having said all this, in the church, it's easy to accuse others of what we are so blind to ourselves. I was a, many years ago, when I was a young pastor, although well, I guess age is relative, isn't it? Uh, depending how old you are, you still view me as a young pastor, which is good. But my, my, my wife and I owned a Reliant K station wagon. Anybody remember those? Okay. Some of you will not admit that you own one. But, you know, station wagon, five-speed, had no frills. That meant that when you wanted the air conditioning, you rolled the window down. Some youth probably don't even remember those little handles you rolled down. I also owned a 69 Cutlass that I paid 500 bucks for. And we had this little 16-foot tri-hull boat that it was worth about eight, dollars $900. That's it. But that was our family project. We moved to Canada. We said, what are we going to do with our kids? And we lived around all this water, so we bought this little tri-hull that sometimes would start, sometimes wouldn't as we coasted towards the Niagara Falls. <laughs> sometimes had to get a tow in, okay? But it was our family project. Now, people would come to me and say, well, you know, so-and-so in the church is really upset with you this triangulation, he didn't come to me and he wasn't talking to me. Now it's hard to figure out what I did if a person doesn't talk to you. Amen? But I kept hearing, oh, they're just so upset at what you did and I'm trying to figure out what I did and they wouldn't talk to me. Finally one day he was in the hospital, serious illness, thought he was going to die, went to visit him and he started talking to me. Found out why he was so angry with me. He told me that I was a covetous pastor. I was materialistic. I says, well, why do you say that? He says, you own a boat. Now, this person, this gentleman, would purchase a brand new Cadillac every two years. Back then, they were about $35,000. And I'm looking at his car, not coveting it, but thinking, okay, you know, he paid 35 grand for this. I paid, let me think, maybe $3,000 for all three vehicles. So being young, I was probably not wise saying this, but I looked at him and says, well, you know, you own a car that's worth $30,000. I have three vehicles that are worth $3,000. I don't get it. He looked at me angrily and says, pastors should not own boats. I didn't win the argument, by the way. But you know, we all do this, don't we? It's easy for me to see in his life, but the goal this morning is not for us to, and here's what I want you to do this morning, okay? I I tell the story lead up to this. I want you to block out everyone else you know covets. (laughs) I want you to block out everybody you are gonna plan on sending the sermon to, or you're praying for sitting somewhere in the auditorium or in another church somewhere, saying we're gonna get them online sometime. I want you to block out all those people and deal with your own heart this morning. Okay, can you do that? Shake your head yes. Want to make sure you're awake. Now what's interesting about this command, it's different than the other 10. In fact, there are two things that are unique about this command. The first is it's internal, not external. You can be coveting and no one else would know but you. Now, we know that God sees what you do. He hears what you say. But what we realize here in the 10th command is he also knows your hearts. And when you start studying other moral codes of other religions, this command is unprecedented. Laws and codes are usually an attempt to govern external behaviors. This is what you can and you can't do. But this one's internal. Internal. And that brings me to the second unique aspect about this. This command is an attempt to govern inward desires of people. And that's what makes Christianity unique. It's about the transformation of the heart. It says there's a root in there called sin. Jesus said it this way. He said there's good trees that produce good fruit and there's bad trees that produce bad fruit. The point is that inside of us, Our desires, our heart, those things nobody can see will produce certain kinds of fruit. And this command tells us that God needs to do some work at the center of you and me. Now, think about it this way. There's many sins that come from the core of coveting. Let's go back to the first command that there's only one God. So you begin to covet God's authority and you want to take over his rule in your life and say, God, you know, I want to take your place. You kind of dance to the tune that I think you should dance. We saw that in the Pharisees, the religious leaders. When they were threatened, we knew they were threatened because their desires were twisted. Luke chapter 16 In verse 14, it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money, that's where their twist was. They put their trust in stuff, not in God and God alone, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Imagine ridiculing God. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And he's getting at the core issue there again, that they allowed their attention to be drawn to power and stuff. And not this Messiah they claim to worship. Take number two, worship only one God. When we covet glory inside the church, worship becomes about me. We want our name to be great. We want people to honor us. We want people to thank us. We want people to respect us. The primary goal for people who covets, worship, Is to make myself great. Now this is the great temptation of every single pastor. And every single worship leader. We have to admit that. We have to know that. Little ritual I do every time I walk on stage. is There's a little verse that John the Baptist spoke. He must increase. I must decrease. It's a reminder. That God gets the glory. I cannot covet that. Adultery. Where did Jesus say it starts? He said it starts in the heart, when you start lusting. Stealing begins with coveting. People who steal say, you know what, I'm entitled, I deserve, therefore I can take. But here's what God is saying to us. If you want to reorient your life, then recognize your hearts. If you want to stop your addiction. And we can be addicted to anything. It can be drugs, alcohol, gossip. We can be addicted to discontents. It's more than stopping certain behaviors. It's more than just rearranging how you do things. The only way is to transform the heart. And there's only one person who can do that, and his name's Jesus. And after you accept Jesus in your life, then you have to let his spirit, his Holy Spirit, do his work. Now, your part and my part is that we obey what we know we need to obey. But only God can give us new desires. And a lot of times, we have to start obeying before those desires come. Amen? Amen. So if we say, well, God, you know, I'm not going to, until you change my heart, I am not going to, and you fill the blank in. Most of that activity, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, has to do with forgiveness. There's far too much unforgiveness going on in our churches. And we are the model example of what Christ has done for us. And we must live the forgiveness that he gave to us. But why is this important? Why is coveting such a big deal? Well, the first reason is that it hurts God. Now, anyone who has or is a parent understands this. I mean, think about a time as a parent that you gave a gift and you were all excited and you gave it out of love and you couldn't wait for them to open it. And when they opened it, they looked at it and you saw, you know what they were thinking? This isn't what I wanted. Think about how that hurt. When we think about coveting, we have to understand that Father knows best. God knows what the desires of your heart should be and our he knows what is best for us, but so often in the church we act like spoiled, entitled kids that throw tantrums when we don't get what we want, and it breaks his heart. Paul tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Truth is, he's given us power and authority to live differently. But Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, have you ever sat down and realized that that when you covet, you make God cry? Now, Paul tells us these things. He goes, You haven't learned Christ this way. You're supposed to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's that phrase, He changes our desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And all this stuff's internal that people can't see. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then he says things like this. Put away falsehood. I mean, that's part of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Be angry and do not sin. Do not give the devil opportunity. Do not steal, he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. Do you recognize these words as something we've been studying over the last 10 weeks? Then he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now hang on to that last thought because we're going to get into a moment. But understand this, when you covet, you hurt God. He weeps. Secondly, it hurts you. Coveting causes you to buy things you cannot afford. And that's physically, and that's emotionally, and that's spiritually. And even if you don't buy them, you're miserable because someone else has what you want. Now, here's how this works. One of the things I really enjoy about life is vehicles. Don't ask me why. I don't know if it's a guy thing or why not, but I like cars. And Bev and I were out The other night, and there is this brand new 2015 Corvette coming through. And, you know, the person behind the wheel had to be, in my mind, at least 99. And I looked and I said, that is so wrong. I would look a lot better driving that. Now, I could have run out. Gone the mass debt, gone against my wife's witches, and created this tension in my life because, no, I cannot afford a 2015 Corvette. And even if I could, would that have been the wisest use of the money at that time? And if I would have done that, I'd go in debt, then I would get upset at the church budget because Why? I'd really struggle paying my tithe. I'd sit there and say, you know, if I had this tithe, I could put it towards that debt and pay that car off real quick. You know, it's why we live in a nation of debt. People covet power, and they covet stuff. And it's why we live in a nation of debtors. We want it now. We want what we can't afford. It's why there's increased violence and anger because people are saying, because they have and I don't, life isn't fair, and they take what they think It should be theirs. And they blame everyone else. They blame businesses. They blame credit card companies. You know, like credit card companies actually hold you down and force you to take their money, right? But that's how we act. But one of the largest debt that I've seen in my own life is what I call the debt of unforgiveness. You know, Scripture tells us, we just read it, that we're to forgive one another as God forgave us. While we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. Forgiveness is not about the other person coming and asking. It is about us taking the grace of God and forgiving them regardless of their position. And when we refuse to let go of unforgiveness, when we covet whatever we want them to do for us, we damage our own souls. We we can't let go of the bitterness, the injustice, And we also damage those around us, the ones we love, the ones that are close to us. And that's the third why. It hurts God, it hurts you, and it hurts others. James chapter 4, the verse 4 verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Now, if we had to answer that question, we'd have a whole lot of reasons like, well, you know, those people aren't doctrinally sound. And, you know, we have all these spiritual reasons But James just kind of strips it bare. Says. Your passions. Are at war within you. See that's coveting. You desire and do not have. So you murder. And we talked about before. How you can emotionally. How you can psychologically. How you can kill someone's character. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now again. Let's put this in context, and I'm going to read the context in a moment. People stop there and say, well, yeah, I'm going to go out and buy the new truck and God will pay for it. No, that's not what that says. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he hits one of the commands, you adulterous people. So see, a coveting behavior on all levels, not only does it make God weep, Not only does it hurt you, it also hurts people that you claim that you love. Now, sadly, I cannot tell you what I have witnessed in detail when parents die. And I watch their children fight over a state. I watch some kids steal. I've watched some estates go down in smoke and the lawyers took everything because nobody would sign off. I've witnessed families refusing to ever talk to each other again. I've witnessed yelling matches at the viewing. Sons and daughters literally just screaming and tearing at each other with their dad or their mom laying there in the coffin. I mean, this is what... Coveting behavior and hearts do. So I want to ask you this morning who are you jealous of? Who are you angry at? Evaluate your motives about why you and you fill the blank in. Who are you fighting with? See, coveting makes us hypersensitive. When you covet, you are offended at everything and everyone. Coveting causes you to be focused on your pleasure, your comfort, your affluence. And it's why in our country today, you know, we are the perpetually offended people. So why is this so important? It hurts God, it hurts yourself, it hurts people around you. So you have to realize this morning that the problem is not with them, it's with you, it's with me. So the big idea of number 10 is the coveting's bad. Did you get that? <laughs> there is an antidote. The antidote is contentment. It's the only antidote there is to, to get rid of a coveting heart and mind and life. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He He didn't talk about, well, life's fair if I have this and this and this, and let's make an equal playing field. No, he says, you know what? With the power of God, salvation through Christ, the power of the Spirit, I can be content no matter what situation I'm in. And here's what he says. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Being brought low means living in poverty. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then here's this verse that we so often quote out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's saying, I know what it's like to be flat broke. I know what it's like to have extra. I know what it's like to be in prison unjustly. I know what it's like to be free. I know what it's like to be beaten for things I never said. To be stoned. I know what it's like to be praised. I know what it's like to be talked about. I know what it's like to be talked with. But here's what he says Contentment is not nurtured by poverty or prosperity. It has nothing to do with what's in your hands, and it has everything to do with what's in your heart. It's not about getting rid of your desires. That's Buddhism. Study it sometimes. It's that you have to get rid of these desires. Christians, it's about engaging your desires with God's desires, your longings for God. See, the problem is not desires. The problem is unholy desire. So I'm curious this morning. You know, whenever people go on mission trips or conferences I sit down and do an evaluation. I ask him this question: So, what's your big take home? Just one thing. So, what's your big take home about this message? And I'm curious about your big take home about the series. I hope you have some. I hope it wasn't like, "Wow, you know, that was interesting. You made me think about some things, but may God really never changed anything." And again, it's just not about changing behavior. It's about transforming desires of the heart. So, what's your big take home this morning? What's been your big take home about the series? When I sat down and thought about that question myself, here's what I wrote down. My big take home about the Ten Commandments, first of all, is that God our Father speaks to us in practical ways. He actually took the time to sit down with us and give us his word. That's very, very different than most religions. He's not aloof, he's not distant, he's up close and he's personal. Second take home was about Jesus Christ, his son. I mean, all 10 commandments, we break every single one of them. If you didn't get that, you need to go back and read them again because if you allow God's spirit, you'll realize it's impossible to maintain every single one. And God's incredible gift to us through Jesus Christ, his son, that he paid for our sin, that he forgave me, was a massive take home through these Ten Commandments. I mean, you get to hear me Sunday morning for about 30, 35 minutes. I got to study this stuff all week long. And it just really pulled at my heart about we really are sinners. So that was a big take home for me. The third take home had to do with the Holy Spirit. I'm impressed that he inspired people to write the very words of God. I'm impressed that he convicts us of sin when we read that word. I'm impressed that he empowers us to live with joy and peace and love, that we can actually live with contentment no matter what our circumstance is. I mean, that is amazing. You want to be witnesses to the world? Live with contentment in a supernatural way because it is the only way to achieve that. i going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close with a song in a moment. But I'm going to pray for all of us um, as we wrap this whole series up. Will you pray with me? Father God, this has been very convicting, at least to me. And I pray, Lord, that we as your church may the desires of your heart be our desires. May we trust you enough that whatever stuff we have, then we are content. May we trust you enough to realize that life is not about power and privilege and status, but rather it's about influence. It's us walking with people in the ways that Christ walked with us. It's about learning to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's learning to be content and And being this visible light of hope to the world that says we are not dictated by our circumstances, but we are dictated by an incredible God who is high and exalted, sitting on a throne, who's in absolute control of everything going on, and he will come again, and someday we will get to live with you forever. Teach us to live there, Lord, because that will be so attractive to a world that is desperately looking for something to make their soul feel better. I thank you for the privilege that we've had to worship you this morning. May your spirit lead and guide us in everyone's head. Amen.